This morning our reading is from Matthew 5, 21 through 48. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of, of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill, it, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here today. I'm so glad to be here um, to just be experiencing worship with my brothers and sisters. Um, God, we pray for Lyle as he comes to bring your word. This is a dense and intense passage, and we just pray for your wisdom um, through him this morning, and just bless him as he comes to teach for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hadn't planned on introducing Lyle this morning, but our internet went down, so I'm having to broadcast everything from my phone. So I'm placing that right there so people online can see him. So once a month, I have different guys in the church come and uh, preach, 
And uh, this month, Lyle has agreed to do that. So we're excited to have you come bring God's word to us, Lyle. Thank you. to be honest with you guys, I'm way more like a Pharisee than I might want to admit. And yet, here I find myself about to talk to you about how Jesus highlights the complete inadequacy and insufficiency of the law. So, a few disclosures to uh, get things started. I'm a wannabe lawyer, as if uh, you couldn't figure that out by starting a talk with disclosures. But um, So, Alan had this We'll describe it as awesome gleam in his eye when he asked me to talk about this passage. And as I've worked through these verses, I think I kind of have a little bit of an idea why. So enjoy the irony as one who hopes to make his living, but justifying the actions of others, work through this passage with you. Next, this is my first time opening the Word of God with a crowd this size. So this is your first time at City Church please be sure and come back next week and hear the real professionals get up here and, and give a good sermon. Um, finally, as you guys have heard, we have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, as in about as many verses as we've covered so far in the Sermon on the Mount series. So um, ho hold on. We're going to move quickly, but hopefully by the end you'll have some of the key themes of this passage framed up, and, and those will serve you as we approach each of these topics in greater detail going forward. So let's just do a brief overview of where, we at, where we're at and kind of get all on the same page. Real quickly, I, I love the title of this series that Alan's given on the Sermon on the Mount. Has anyone else seen, seen that title slide when it pops up? Jesus, are you, are you serious? It just gets deeper as I think about it more, so... If you're like me, as we pass through the Beatitudes, there's generally a positive, hopeful tone. Each verse begins with blessed, or as we heard, happy. And then we go on to fill in the blank. You know, the, the conditions, they're challenging. They're tough. But hey, Jesus, if you're serious about this whole blessing part, I think I can get behind what you're asking there. Then we move through this beautiful imagery as Jesus calls each of us to be salt and light in the world. Okay. Jesus is giving me a job. Might need a little bit of help, but I think I'm up for it. And now, we find ourselves staring down six sets of statements defining right and wrong. Jesus knew his audience and our natural tendencies when he selected these specific statements of right and wrong to illustrate true righteousness for his audience. After only a few minutes of teaching, he would leave no doubt about God's standard for righteousness. Before we go any further, I'd just like to define kind of a key term for our study today. You'll hear me use the word righteousness quite a bit because, well, that's what's in the text. But righteousness is not exactly a term that you guys probably hear out and about in 2023. A little bit of a church word sometimes. So when I say righteousness, you might want to think of something as rightness, or just that state of being right. This morning, I hope to briefly draw you into a common heritage that we share with those early followers of Jesus, even the Pharisees that heard this sermon for the first time. 
From their perspective, we will look at how Jesus expands the law given to Moses by broadening their conception of righteousness under the law. Then, we will begin to wrestle with the application of this broader view of true righteousness to our own hearts. So to begin, I want to come alongside those followers on the mountainside, including the Pharisees and other religious leaders that were no doubt lurking on the back row to hear Jesus' teaching. And I hope we can recognize our kinship with them as we place ourselves under Jesus' teaching this morning. In short, I hope we will see that you means you and me. From the very earliest chapters of Scripture, we see mankind's powerful attraction to the knowledge of good and evil. After all, that's what the serpent used to lure a human, made in God's likeness, into sin. Why is that? Why, why, is our, why are we so fascinated with knowing good and evil, right, wrong? As you all know, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden. They lived in relationship with God, just as God had designed it. When God created man, he declared that he was very good. By design, they did not need to know good and evil because the one who was good had made them in his likeness. Now, in his words to Eve, the serpent concedes a powerful fact. Genesis 3.5 tells us, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent even acknowledges that God stands as that ultimate definition of good and evil, right and wrong. But Eve was curious. What is evil? Maybe if I know what evil is, then I will know that I'm good. The serpent lures her to the tree with a promise of self-justification. The tragic irony is that the desire to know good and evil foreclosed that possibility of actually being good. Mankind had rejected God's design. A creature made in his likeness, walking in relationship with a holy, righteous creator. In that original act of sin, Eve refused to trust God's proclamation that she was good. So what is the, the allure of this self-justification? To put it simply, I think in a, in a modern sense, we would describe it as what feels right. The struggle to know right and wrong is the ultimate issue behind so many debates that we see around us today. Now, I don't have any statistics to put in front of me, but I think it's probably a safe assumption to say that most people want to know right or wrong, good or evil. Not because they want to pursue evil, or do what's wrong, but no. So they can know that they are good, that they are right. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit through the Old Testament. I promise we'll keep moving quickly here. Like I said, there's a lot to do. So we're on the, the slopes of Mount Sinai. God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He's guiding them back to the land that he had promised four generations earlier. God is going to codify a set of rules to govern how his people, Israel, would relate to him and his creation. This is a special moment in the timeline of humanity. God is going to give Moses and the people of Israel a description of what he desired from his people 
and how they can live righteous lives before him. The people of Israel covenant with God to obey all that he says. I mean, what, what an incredible moment that we have here. Infinite, boundless God, creator, sustainer of the universe, mercifully reducing a part of himself to words on a stone tablet, on a page, so that his people can be in relationship with him. Let, let me try and illustrate what God is doing for Israel here with something that my wife and I do as we're trying to, to raise our kids. Maui and I refer to one of our main parenting goals as raising kids into people that we would want to be our friends. With that goal in mind, we try to make clear statements defining right, wrong. In one sense, we want them to be well-behaved, socially acceptable. But on a deeper level, we want that deep, lasting relationship with them. If you've met my kids, you've seen them running around, even, even this morning, you know that uh, we're, we consider them a long way from this goal. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I know. But, but we are still working on it. So hopefully, you know, once they, they get a little, little older, they'll, they'll catch up. And so, back to Israel. They, they proceeded through these many, you know, shall, shall we call them adventures, trying to obey the commands of God, to be blameless before God. There are moments of glory for Israel. They walk in relationship with God, using the law given to Moses as a means to know their God, to worship him. But there are also plenty of examples when Israel walks away from their relationship with the one who is righteous to pursue something else, something that feels right. In the day of Jesus, the Pharisees combined their human desire to be found good, right, justified. That is, knowing good and evil, and of course being found good, with God's instructions in the law. The Pharisees represented this contemporary iteration of Israel's pursuit of something that felt right. They obsessed over every detail of the law. They forgot what it means to know God. Interestingly, the prophet Isaiah had spoken of this exact phenomenon in the Old Testament. You may remember an interaction later on in Jesus' ministry when Jesus confronts the Pharisees with the words of Isaiah. He says, hey, you know, Isaiah hit it on the head with you when he was talking about you guys. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but with their heart, they are far from me. If we turn back to that same chapter and, and read down just a little, little further, we see this description of how this can happen, how a people can pay lip service to the Lord while their hearts are in the complete wrong place. Isaiah 29, 16 says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of the one who formed it, He has no understanding? Despite this warning in the prophecy of Isaiah, this is the mentality of the religious leaders of that day. When Jesus says, You've heard it said, these are the people that were, were doing the saying. Now, before we pass too much judgment upon the Pharisees, I, I think we need to take a, a little bit closer look in the mirror. As I said earlier, I know I have far more in common with the Pharisees than I want to admit. I think we all might. How much of our nature of humans is to solve the problem? What better way to solve a massive problem like righteousness than to compartmentalize? We do it every day. 
We even have catchy little mantras to remind us of how, about the power of compartmentalization. How do you need to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Maybe for you business types out there, how about those smart goals? Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound. One of my personal favorites, capturing what is often my mentality, find the problem, fix the problem. So when the law commands Israel to honor the Sabbath, don't walk more than this many paces on the Sabbath, kind of seems like a solution that we might have come up with too. A little different meaning to uh, did you get your steps in than we might mean today, but altogether a, a pretty similar mindset. A box to check to declare oneself right, good. Now that box can take many different forms. We might scoff at the Pharisees' rules about how far they can walk, but the temptation remains to declare ourselves righteous through our own behaviors. I might crave that feeling that comes when I finish a 40-day Bible study in 40 days. Or my enlightened religious traditions, maybe they make me feel just a little more righteous than some of the others. But here, Jesus confronts six statements from the law that one must keep in order to be found righteous. He confronts that with that true description of what really is righteousness as God sees it. Hopefully, you can see that we have a common ground, common ground with the crowd gathered before Jesus that day. Let's put ourselves in their sandals, someone on that side of the mountain. He begins with murder. Generally speaking, most people are in agreement. Murder's, murder's wrong. Pretty, pretty clear offense. One human being causing the death of another human being. Anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. All right. Everybody's pretty much tracking with Jesus. Feeling pretty good about myself, you know. Haven't murdered anyone today. <laughs> Yesterday. Last week. Last year. My whole life. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. But anyone who is angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Insult your brother? Liable to the council. Those are the guys who handed out the death penalty in that day. Say, you fool. Liable to the fire of hell. Oh, no, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, you're saying if I'm angry, I'm going to have the same consequences as the murderer. Hey, uh, Jesus, can, can we talk about this, this just a minute? But Jesus is already on to the next point. Adultery. Okay. Back to familiar territory. <coughs> Haven't done that. Not me. And then it happens again. But, look at a woman with lustful intent. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Wait a minute. I can sin in my heart? And so Jesus goes down the list. Breaking a covenant before the Lord. Swearing oaths in the Lord's name. An eye for an eye love your enemies, each step of the way. He rejects the meaning of how one could be found righteous in that day. He begins to reveal more of how the lawgiver views his law. His law was not the end. It wasn't the conclusion. The law that God had given Moses was an introduction to the lawgiver. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 1 describes the law as but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Jesus explains that murder is merely the visible part, the shadow of the true sin, anger. 
He reveals that true righteousness is far more encompassing than what was set out in the law to Moses. Certainly more encompassing than the narrow contemporary view of righteousness taught by the Pharisees. The word had become flesh and dwelt among them, and there he stood, the lawgiver, animating his law before their very eyes. Now, I ask you to put your, yourself under the sound of his voice that day, to try to experience the weight of that moment. But if you're like me, you might have forgotten it you were imagining that you were in someone else's shoes. These words, they carry a similar impact to me standing here today as they did on the mountainside a couple millennia ago. I think those six contrasting statements pack more than enough of a punch to sting just about everyone's heart. If we allow it, this more encompassing view of righteousness that Jesus announces here brings this new awareness of the depth of our brokenness. The Pharisees had spent their existence on defining right and wrong in a way that felt manageable, relying on meticulous rules performed before men to give them confidence. The Pharisees wanted their righteousness to only depend on their actions. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, etc. But Jesus confronts them with the reality of a lawgiver who sees the hearts of men. Jeremiah tells us that God tests the righteous. He sees the heart and the mind. God created us not only bodies with hearts and minds. His view of true righteousness must incorporate each of these distinct elements of our humanity. Turning back to Isaiah 29, we get an idea of what Jesus saw that day before him. People that draw near with their mouth honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Jesus illustrates how this phenomenon can occur against a standard of true righteousness. You might be righteous before men, but God judges the heart. And these are the rules that he is using. I hope that as you, you're starting to feel the weight pressing on Jesus' followers as they listen to these words. As we surveyed this broadening of the law, making it more encompassing, the inclusion of these deep internal thoughts and feelings, this new standard Jesus proclaims can feel all the more impossible. I think part of that is our understanding that these behaviors that Jesus condemns equally alongside murder and adultery, sins that we know bear the consequence of death, come along so naturally. Murder, adultery, those are going to take a little bit of planning, effort to commit. So I can probably avoid falling into one of those on accident. But anger, lust, a legally excusable violation of a promise, Th those things, they seem to just pop in my mind on their own, beyond my control. You might, might say it it's, just feels like it's part of my nature. I love the imagery that author of Hebrews uses again to describe this hard place that we find ourselves. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, 
discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't know about you, but I can almost feel the, the thrust of Jesus' words on the mountain kind of, kind of poking into my chest right about now. The second frame of the artwork in the hallway out here, I hope you guys have, have seen that. I, I think it captures this, this space so well, this realization that we have that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. But Jesus does something else as he describes his view of the law to his followers. Something that I think it's, it's easy to miss in light of the convicting power of these words. But I'm afraid if we miss it, if we miss what Jesus is doing here on this deeper level, we're, we're just following in the way of the Pharisees. We're separating the words of Jesus, this new standard of true righteousness, from the person of Jesus, who's actually giving them, our Savior. On the one hand, we have Jesus proclaiming this incredibly high standard of righteousness for his followers, broadening the law. But remember, one of the fundamental flaws of the Pharisees, they separated the lawgiver from his law. We can't separate these six statements of Jesus from his prior breath. You guys might remember from the last couple of weeks, in verse 17 of, of chapter 5 in Matthew, he says that he came to fulfill the law. Not, I'm here to fulfill the law as you guys see the law. No, I'm here to fulfill the law. Now, let me tell you what that actually means. Here, intertwined with these piercing convictions, words that invite us into this relationship. Even as deep and intimate and personal as Jesus' words are, he leads with a promise. I am here to fulfill the law. As we looked at earlier in the giving of the law to Moses, the great I am allowed part of himself to be reduced to words on a page for the benefit of his people. Let's remember what we saw in Hebrews 10. The law was but a shadow a representation lacking the true form of the good things to come. Now, sitting here on the mountainside, these followers of Jesus receive this incredible invitation to experience God as the word had become flesh, dwelling there among them. No longer was their relationship to God through this shadowy representation of himself in the law. He stood before them, inviting them into this relationship with himself. So where does that leave us? What are we supposed to do with this unwieldy behemoth that you've dropped in our laps, Lyle? Well, glad you asked. Thanks. First, like I said earlier, come back next week so Alan can straighten this out and make some more, make some more sense of it for you. But as we go out from this place, confronted by the depravity of our, our human nature. I want to leave you with something to ponder over the next week and beyond as we study each of these illustrations in greater detail. There's an important distinction between living under the law and living in relationship with the lawgiver. The law compels obedience by imposing a duty or, or an obligation. We see this in American law as well. In contracts, we say that 
the law imposes a duty on the parties to perform what they said they were going to do in the contract. The law says that, you know, when we're just walking around, driving around, we generally owe a duty of reasonable care to the others. Now, that's something for lawyers to fight about, but that's generally what, what it says. And if we violate these duties, the law is going to hold us liable for those damages. We generally try to respect the law. Why not run afoul of those legal duties? Similarly, the Mosaic Law, it imposes a set of duties on those that are subject to it. These are the things that you will do, and if you don't, you're wrong. You've got to suffer the punishment for being wrong, whatever that is. Now, contrast that against a relationship. A relationship requires a certain mutuality of desire. Otherwise, there can't be this bond that we call a relationship. As tempting as it might be to reduce a relationship to a set of duties to one another, that becomes a transaction, not a relationship. When we accept Jesus' invitation to a relationship, the law becomes a means rather than an end. First, the law serves to grow our desire, teaches us about who we are in relationship with. We can cherish this impossibly high standard of conduct because that is what our God is like. The standard of true righteousness becomes this representation of true holiness. We can cherish what he has done and who he is. Next, our obedience becomes an expression of that desire for the relationship. The law reveals how we can love God in a better, deeper way. The original love language, if you will. To sum it up, Jesus sets out a standard of true righteousness. When we apply this new, encompassing standard of righteousness to our own lives, we recognize the depth of our own depravity. But Jesus does not announce this new standard in a vacuum. He promises that he has come to fulfill all of the obligations under the law. When we accept the invitation and enter into that relationship with Jesus, we are no longer bound by a duty to obey the law. Instead, we are free to view the law of God as Jesus does, an expression of the true righteousness of the lawgiver and an opportunity to demonstrate our love for him. Now, those are all my words. I want to conclude with... Uh, some words from, from Paul, a guy that knew, knows a good fair bit more than I do. Um, but nonetheless, I think it sums up what we talked about here this morning very well. This comes from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you would reveal yourself in ways that we can understand, that we can comprehend. Father, I pray that as we go out from this place, we would, on one hand, dwell on the depravity of our own nature, but in that same breath, we remember to turn to you. Turn to the standard of true righteousness, a description of your, your holiness, and that we would, we would marvel that you would invite us into that and that we would engage with that. I pray that you would fuel the desire within us to obey your commands, to hold ourselves to a standard of righteousness that you describe, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we love you, and we want that deeper relationship with you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.